0: No pressing announcements. We do have a session meeting Tuesday night, in case you forgot we had changed it. Thank you. We do have a session Tuesday night, in case you forget. Um, You can always uh, uh, attend. It is Zoom, so get a hold of us and we'll send you the link. We have the call to worship. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and let us sing him or Psalm 11b, Psalm 11b. Look upon you, God Almighty, through Christ Jesus our Lord, by the power and grace of the Spirit, God, and we are thankful for that fact that we can come and draw nigh unto you as you call us and encourage us, Lord, in the book of Hebrews. That the veil has been torn, and we ought to enter with boldness. Boldness through prayer and boldness through worship, God, and that is boldness and realization that our sins have been conquered, and that our guilt has been assuaged and covered by the blood of Christ Jesus. and So we should not be timid in that regards. Help us, we pray, God, to that end, that this worship and your spirit with us, God, will strengthen us to that end, that we may glorify you and honor you all the more publicly. We pray these things in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. We have the reading of Psalm 46, or part of Psalm 46, inside the bulletin, the insert. Psalm 46, let us read it responsively. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And though. though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The the Lord, make the he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots in the fire. No the, in the, the, Lord, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. And so we see here at the end and at the beginning of God being our strength and our refuge, a very present help in trouble. And it's interesting that as we as he unpacks that theme, that he doesn't look to his immediate situation per se. God's help for us is not always as we want it or see it, but it always will be and its full culmination, when he does indeed return, and the nations that rage against him shall be moved, and his voice shall utter, and the world shall tremble at his presence, and he will make the wars to cease. So he's looking into the future, I believe. And God is indeed in the midst of us, and he will protect us, ultimately, both body and soul. Let us pray. We do come before you, God, with the faith and confidence that you've instilled in our hearts. We come, Lord, acknowledging nevertheless the struggles with sins that we have, perhaps of sins of indifference towards your righteousness at times, Lord, to our own advantage, we think, that, God, your law is holy and just, that we forget it at times. And, Lord, we ask that we would have hearts of repentance, hearts of acknowledging our violations of your holy righteous ways of doing things and of thinking and of acting and of speaking help us in that endeavor we pray God to be comforted by the gospel promise that tells us as you are faithful and just to forgive us all unrighteousness God we confess our sins and so Lord may we confess them not just today but uh, every day in any time in which we uh, have sinned and we have conviction Lord we pray by your spirit and your word our Lord Savior we thank you for your majesty For your righteousness, for your uprightness, God, that you have beauty and holiness, Lord God Almighty. The beauty of your moral law expresses the greatness of who you are. May we stand in awe of that. May we praise you for that, Lord. May we pursue it and tell others of it. In particular, God, our Father and Lord, Lord of the Covenant we pray for our churches we pray for our efforts in home missions locally and at the presbytery and the general assembly that we would endeavor as we can and if we have opportunities lord both financially and materially with the aid of, of an evangelist perhaps lord we pray for such men to be raised up and you would support them god in your providence and we can do what we can do lord to help them to spread the gospel, to establish local churches. We praise you, Lord, for the establishment of such churches. We read recently on Facebook of a church down in Texas, Lord, and how they've been particularized. That's one more church that's out there preaching the gospel and helping the saints, Lord, and and maturing them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We pray for more such efforts, God, efforts to help our neighbors, to help our city and our county, Lord, locally to think locally in that regards of preaching the gospel of spreading the truth to them of drawing them unto you as we are able lord to reach out to the highways and byways we pray in god in particular for such wisdom lord of such men to establish new churches which has its own unique challenges god and that these men would be vetted to that regards and that need and that need lord they would have the abilities and understanding and wherewithal to establish such things and to find the saints lord not just in the cities, but also in the countryside, as we have many such churches there as well, or potential churches, Lord, to find these Christians who wish to gather together with a common understanding and a common goal of glorifying you and following your ways and establishing a church, a faithful church, in accordance to your word, we pray. We thank you for our efforts, Lord, in all these domains, uh, locally up to the national level, and our, our, our church, Lord, and thank you, God, through your Spirit, we have a fair amount of unity, and that we would have purity of instruction, Lord, purity of understanding of how uh, to establish such churches and maintain in a, a practical understanding always within the context of the holiness of your word and your law. We ask, God, not only for our church, <clears throat> but for ourselves in particular, that we who are your stewards, we who have been in gift, gifted and entrusted, Lord, with time, with abilities, with strengths, with money, with resources, Lord, to use it in accordance to the importance of priorities given to your word and natural revelation around us and our circumstances as we see them, Lord, certainly uh, for our family, certainly for those close to us and our churches, God, that we'd use such things, we would steward them, that we would husband them and uh, guide them correct and conserve them in in the good sense of not bearing them under the ground, but to use them wisely and Effectively, we pray for your kingdom's sake, Lord, in accordance to your word. Help us in that regard to take these things seriously, God, to be thankful indeed, to be grateful in our hearts that we have such blessings and to use them for one another, we pray. Help us to encourage one another in that regard to take stewardship seriously, that the world may see that we take seriously, that we, Lord, are honored. And that we are in awe of who you are, of the many things you've given us, God, and that we use them aright, we pray. And we ask not only for ourselves and our families and these endeavors and the stewardship that we are called to, but we pray for our neighbors. We pray for their salvation. We pray for the opening of their hearts, opportunities of conversation with them, perhaps, Lord, as things come up. And we would be kind to, towards them, and certainly, Lord, in our hearts and our, our predispositions, even if we don't get to see them very often, as is the case sometimes. Uh, with many busy neighbors and co workers, perhaps, and the like. And we pray not only for them, Lord, and for good upon them through your providence, but especially upon their souls. We pray, God, for our justices and uh, the protest outside of them, the heinous protests where they use a symbol, they think they're proud of a symbol coat hanger. It's atrocious because they willingly harm themselves to get rid of their baby. Our God and Savior, we pray for a stop to such butchery and such wickedness, such moral monstrosity, Lord Almighty, and that you protect the justices and uh, guide them, we pray, to do the right thing in overturning Roe v. Wade. Indeed, all our other justices, all our other leaders, locally, locally and nationally, God, and to move out of the way that they would perhaps fall into their own snares, as we read in the Psalms, God. And certainly, we always pray, Lord, not out of... Uh, raw hatred against them, but for justice and mercy's sake, these things, but always as well that they would repent. And you would raise up godly men and leaders, Lord, to preserve life, and again, to also protect your church, we pray. We ask for your presence to be among us this morning, as you've promised in your word, Lord, that we trust and obey in accordance to the strength you've given us by your grace, we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Amen. With these tithes and offerings, God Almighty, we ask that they would indeed be an expression of a heart and love to you, a praise before you, Lord, and they would be used greatly and mightily for your kingdom's sake. Amen. As we are standing, let us sing hymn 463-463. The green insert of the bulletin. Let us read it together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands. To those who love me, keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, Know your female servant, know your cattle, know your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn into our Bibles to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. And then, Leviticus 20, verse 7 and 8. I, will, I downloaded a program when you're looking up Leviticus. Esword is called Electronic Sword, and I, I recommend it to you. Not all the resources there, they have squirrely resources, but you can get Matthew Henry, for example, which is good. Or the, was the Bible Treasure Knowledge, cross-reference everything else. And to get something else, I had to sign up. You don't have to sign up normally and put my name and register. And in registering, they want to make sure you weren't a bot. You've all seen that. You're not, are you a bot? And the way they did it was quite interesting. They said, what's the third book of the Bible? <laughs> no bot's going to figure that one out. <laughs> so there, there's your Christian um, filter protection. <sighs> Password. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, let us listen attentively to the word of God. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Let us pray. With these words, God, that summarize the call of the Christian life, the call to be more like Jesus and our Lord above, the call to be holy. May we, Lord, be encouraged therein and not terrified of this call, as God was encouraging them, Lord, with his word and his precepts here, and rooting it in who he is, the holy and righteous Lord of all creation. We pray, God, that your Spirit be with us as we go through this series on holiness and growth in the Christian life, we pray. Amen. The book of Leviticus is probably the least read book in the Bible, perhaps after Numbers, I don't know. Debate there. I think it's not so much the indifference to the content of the book, but likely the bewildering content of the book. After all, it speaks of burning animals on altars, of avoiding unclean things, of evaluating leprosy, and directing men with robes, headgear, and vest embellished with jewels and precious stones. What is that all about? How is any of that relevant or useful for Christians today? And I would like to show you how and to what extent, and in many ways, the beauty of the book of Leviticus. But first of all, to the larger idea. A major theme in Leviticus, holiness. What is holiness? It's a question all Christians would have asked and should ask at one time in their Christian life. What does it mean to me? What does it mean to God? The call of holiness, as we know, sometimes is grossly exaggerated and confused in many and sundry ways, and I covered that in 1 Peter, where Peter, as you recall, quotes Leviticus, be a holy nation. In fact, that's Exodus, but also be holy, which is Leviticus, and ties the two together in his mind because it's still relevant for us today to be holy. And Christians see this and they have confusion about what it means or what is not. And I hope in this small series to unpack these things in a different way. I know I've preached on sanctification before, uh, but this will come from a slightly different angle and a different emphasis, I think. What is holiness? The text before us talks of holiness First of all, the remote context in reading any given sentence, uh, ideally you should have an idea of how it fits within the chapter or the pericope is more precise. The chapters are artificial, of course, the divisions. A collection of verses that cover a same idea and that within the larger idea of the book. What's the point of the book and how does this sentence or this collection of verses fit to that larger point? Leviticus The name comes from the Latin Vulgate, about Levites, that which deals with the Levites. Uh, It's about, obviously, the Levitical priesthood, but not only about the Levitical priesthood. We just read that there in chapter 19, verse 2, where he says to Moses, speak to all the congregation. So it's not just... The Levites only that the book of Leviticus is about, but also written and directed explicitly to all the congregation. And it's not just all the congregation should know what a priest is up to, which is a good thing. You ought to know what your pastor's up to. I'm not a priest, but the parallel, the New Testament era of the church officers there is the same thing. You should know the duties of the officers. And that's why we go through First and Second Timothy, for example, written to a pastor. So that you know and expect and can avoid wolves for example. But it's more than that. Leviticus talks to the congregants about what they should do and what holiness is for them. Be holy as I am holy. Now, the book of Leviticus is broadly divided, chapter 1 through 17, and then chapter 18 to 27, maybe chapter 16. There's some questions about it, but clearly something has changed a little bit in the latter part of the the First part is mostly the cultic laws, that is, the ceremonial laws of setting up and the sacrifices, and then preparing Aaron and his sons to be formally set aside after being in the desert as officers in the church, as the priest and the high priest. And then, after that, we have chapter 16, although not the center of the book, is central to the theology of the book, the great day of atonement. And then the latter part, chapter 18 to 27, we have a lot more moral laws: the call to love the stranger and not hate him, the call to maintain pure families in marriage, for example, none of which are covered in the first part of Leviticus. That broad division can be further breaking, broken down into six parts of regulations for sacrifices up to chapter seven. Then ordination, as I said before, of the priests and the first sacrifices of the priests, chapter 8 through chapter 10, and then the laws on ritual purity, in particular, verses 11 to 15, and then the great day of atonement, chapter 16, and the latter part being the laws of holy living, chapter 17 to 26, which is sometimes called the holiness code. You may run across that in commentaries. And then the laws on tithes and offerings at the very end. And so the book is more than just the Levites. It's the congregation. As I said before, the keystone of the structure, as one commentator describes it, is chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Up to that point is about approaching God through the sacrifices, and then the priests, and preparing the priests, all of which, of course, what? Point to Jesus Christ. The Great Day of Atonement, which is done about once a year, in the Holy of Holies, and that's the only time, not just any priest, but the great high priest himself comes after he has purified himself, as our Lord has purified himself, Jesus Christ. So he goes in, and as we know, he tore, uh, the he rent the division of the curtain between the places, and now we have free access through him. All that points to Jesus, and all that, in fact, prepares for the latter part of the book, where you do have more moral exhortations, where you Clearly we have the Ten Commandments, for example, in chapter 19. Not in the same order, but over talking about things related to the Ten Commandments there. Because once we have been born again, once we have been delivered, once the great atonement of Jesus Christ has covered our sins, we are called unto holiness. And he gives us those instructions. It's the same pattern, in other words, grace given to us and directing us towards a holy living When they were brought out of Egypt, right? They were delivered out of Egypt, out of bondage. A picture of our deliverance out of Satan's kingdom. And then God gave them the law. And so in Leviticus, the ceremonial system, the sacrifices, the temple, and the priests, of course, all point to Jesus Christ and how we have to have this deliverance because we are not holy enough. We have to have bloodshed for our violations of God's law. But once that is accomplished, then we are pointed towards what it means to be a Christian in this life and eternity, which is a life of holiness. Be ye holy. It's given in that context of already being delivered. Not that we try to be holy enough to be delivered, not that we have God's law given first, and then we have freedom from Egypt. Rather, we are saved first, and then given God's law as a path of holiness and righteousness. It's important, right? Got to get that order right, or you're going to be living in bondage and guilt the rest of your life, because you will sin. He's not saying, well, after Leviticus uh, chapter 17, don't worry about the sacrifices anymore. You don't need to go back to the blood of Christ. You don't need to repent. You don't need to worry about that anymore because you're going to be perfect. No, you're going to have it. It's assumed you have to go back, back to Jesus, always repenting. But it's always in the context of the hope and the promise and the reality that we indeed are saved. And these chapters in particular, we have 19 and 20 are very explicit about laws of holy living, laws of holy living because we are already saved and redeemed and holy in Christ Jesus. Now let us therefore act accordingly. Many moral exhortations, not exclusively, there are other ceremonial exhortations, but especially a lot more moral exhortations there in 1920 and following. Chapter 19 is the laws and exhortations to holy living in general. As I said, it covers each of the Ten Commandments but with Different order, but all the topics are there. And then chapter 20, laws against sacrifice to Moloch. That would be an interesting sermon today, right? Sorcery and family laws, marriage and nakedness and the like. The principle in particular in this passage and the other passage, right? Leviticus 19.2, be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then chapter 20, verse 7 and 8, consecrate yourself, what? And be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I am the Lord, verse 8, who sanctifies you. When he says, be holy, when he says, consecrate yourself, when he says, I sanctify you, those are all synonyms. They're saying the same thing differently. Holiness is about consecration. Consecration is about being sanctified. Sanctification is about holiness. The first thing I want to point out here with the principle, of the, that is, the point of the text, what is the moral truth? The truth is, be holy, for I am holy. I want to emphasize the I am holy. The holiness of God is the basis of the command. You shall keep my statutes, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. For I am the Lord your God, and you are my people. I am the Lord your God who is holy. Because I am who I am, you ought to be this way as well. Why? Because you are my people. And you are supposed to be like me, as family has relationships, right? Children are like their parents. And we are supposed to be like our Heavenly Father above. And so how is God holy? I'm preaching on holiness in the Christian life, and what I'm saying is it starts with God and His holiness. Clearly, God ties it there. Not just these two texts, but a number of places in Leviticus. He just says, be holy, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Broadly, holiness with respect to God, God's holiness is that which makes him separate from creation. When we think of that word, we hear holy. Are you holy? You're untouched, you're clean, you're away from people. And so, with respect to God, that's certainly the case. He's separated in twofold manner. As to his being, he is the creator, we are the creation. We will never be like him. He will always be holy in that sense. His attributes, especially his incommunicable attributes, that which makes him unique, his independence for example, his immutability always makes him holy, unique and separate, right? So there's holiness in the sense of what he is in his being and also morally. That's what we're used to, and that's what we have to imitate. He's separate as to his being, and we see that with respect to fire representing God's holiness. Right, We run across a number of texts in the Bible here in Leviticus. I only give you a few here in Exodus, for example. Exodus 29:34, And if any of the flesh of the consecration or the separation that put aside of the holy offerings or of the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten. Why? Because it is holy, set aside, unique, special. And God says, anything offered to me must be holy. And in this case, you've got to consume the entirety of it. So fire is associated with holiness. If it's holy, you better burn it up. Psalm 97.2. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies around about him. The very nature of God is to consume wickedness. And when God's people are around him, uh, we have this in Leviticus, uh, for example, I didn't read it in other places, they tremble in his presence. Even though they even sanctify themselves, they follow the rituals the priests do, and they're still like, oh, this, is, this is a holy God. Just even if we were morally perfect, like, I don't know, Adam, before the fall, you would still have that godly fear because God's holiness is more than morality, which is a good thing, obviously, but just who he is. He's separate and different. So there is godly fear, I would argue, I've mentioned this before, outside of sin. That is, we obviously fear we don't want to be punished, that's part of the Christian life to some extent, but just the fact that God is God, Adam had that kind of godly fear. Well, I'm not going to drill into that, but to point out that that's part of what it is, and it makes sense that morality comes out of that, because The communicable attributes, as you recall, those attributes which we have in a creaturely level, similar to God, holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy, you have mercy. It's not God's mercy, it's not immutable mercy, it's not independent mercy, right? It's finite, it's limited, but it's still mercy. We don't have the incommunicable parts, that's what makes him unique in his being. But morality, uh, in that sense, the call of holiness, we can imitate and we do have at a creaturely level. And so, be holy, we are called, because God is holy. That's the holiness of God. Who he is and what he does and the morality that we are called to imitate him in justice and in mercy and in righteousness is the basis of our call to be holy. Be ye holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy. The holiness of man, of course, is the morality of that we have, not our being as such. And there is an as implied in there, of course, be holy, for I am holy. The as implication is that we will never be equal to God's holiness, it's still a creaturely holiness, still finite, still mutable. That is, in this life it will be immutable in heaven, praise be to God. But with respect to time, there was a time in which we sinned, there was a time in which it was mutable. God never has this. It's always immutable, always holy, always perfect. We'll never match that kind of holiness, ever. So, the as is implied. We are called to be holy, morally perfect. Moral holiness is broadly defined as separation from sin and consecration unto God in righteousness. So, separation from sin is a negative right. Don't. Violate God's law, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat. And consecration is to be set aside unto holiness, God's righteousness, and God's goodness. Be holy like Yahweh your God is holy, over and over again, there in Leviticus. And again, holiness is a separation from sin and consecration unto God in righteousness. But where is righteousness defined? It's a very vague term. If we don't have a proper understanding of that, well, God's law. God's law defines righteousness, and therefore gives us what holiness looks like. Chapter 20, verse 8, we read part of that. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. That's where holiness lies following God's law. The law displays God's holiness, and that we must imitate. We call it sanctification, being set apart from sin unto righteousness and obedience to God's law by His power and His grace. And the description we've given in the Shorter Catechism, for example, dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. See, there's two parts to it. I'm not going to go into those details. this is an opening sermon of my series to go through this text, some to give us a different perspective, I hope. So the application then, of holiness, the call, we are called to be holy, be, ye holy, all of you." not just some of you, for example. The Old Testament application in particular, is the ceremonial law as a lesson, a binding lesson, to be sure. They had to obey it. That is, the ceremonial law being the priest, the temple and the sacrifices, right? Just like baptism and the Lord's Supper are binding upon us, but we're not going to have them in heaven. We're not going to have baptism anymore in heaven. not going to try to grab more people to bring them to heaven and baptize them, have them. It's over. It's done. And the Lord's Supper, the imagery there, of course, is we have the Mary's Supper of the Lamb of Revelation. I don't think that means we're going to be literally sitting down eating all the time for eternity. It's a picture of the, the, the finality and the finishedness of redemption and that our purity is there, and we have sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ forever and ever. So no more Lord's Supper, no more once a you know. however often you have the Lord's Supper, well, at least once a week if you do it weekly, you're not going to do it every day, we're not Roman Catholics. So you're not going to have that. It's temporary, like their ceremonial system was temporary, we have ceremonies, just those two during worship. It's going to be gone. And it's still binding because it teaches them God's morality and His holiness, it's Visible lessons for the Old Testament saints, and, and we're going to find out for ourselves, still useful in understanding. And in fact, one way of looking at all these regulations in Leviticus, especially when we read all the, well, you do this and you're impure, you are got to purify yourself. The regulation of a myriad of daily matters, these laws on ritual purity, sought to ingrain, as one commentator says, the concept of a holy life into the social consciousness of the people. God says through these commands here, do this and do that because I, the Lord your God, am holy. To show you it's everywhere in life. It's broad, it's deep. And the deep and the broadness of the holiness of life of the calling is also seen in the gradations of holiness. Pastor, aren't we holy in Christ Jesus? Amen. That's justification. And our sanctification, it grows. It ebbs and flows. Sometimes we're more sanctified than other times. We know that. Our justification never changes. That's a declarative act of God. But our sanctification does indeed change, and that's reflected in the Old Testament. Gradations of holiness, which of course imply what? Gradations of sin. We see it there in that pattern of the sanctuary, which was in the middle of the Israelite camp, The tent of meeting inside, that had the holy place and then the holy of holies, which can only be approached, what, once a year, and that with the high priest. And everyone else was in the camp, what would be called the commonplace, and yet holy compared to those outside the camp. What went outside the camp? The goats. When they laid their hand on the goat and set it outside the camp, outside the holy presence of God's people. So although relative to the priests and the people themselves were not as holy as the priests, they were still holy compared to the world. And in fact, we know they're called holy. In Exodus, a holy nation, Peter calls them that as well. Being unholy had the consequences of having to purify yourself before you came to worship, before you went into the court of the temple. You couldn't go into the temple uh, proper, as you know, in the tent. The priest had to go in there, and then the holy of holies and the like. The tabernacle. The temple had the same pattern. But what's interesting there, in the laws there in Leviticus, as we're still talking about holiness, of being separate from the world, is that you have a baby, you're unholy. You touch a dead animal, you're unholy. You have emissions, you're unholy. And you go through that list, you're like, what in the world? Like, whatever you do, you're unholy. Bingo. That's the point. To drive home the lesson of sin and of holiness. The reciprocal, the the response to sin should be holiness. The primary concern, as one commentator says, of these purity laws was to make sure that anyone who was unclean did not enter the courtyard of the sanctuary. The power and danger lay not with the unclean. Oh, there's something wrong with having a baby. No, not as such, but with the holy. The holy would consume anything unclean that did not come, that came into its presence. Because now we're going into the being of God. It's just a consuming fire. So the lesson here was a lesson of who he is and what we are called to be in all parts of life. That's what they were taught in the Old Testament, and we can learn the same lesson today. Leviticus is still helpful, therefore for us to learn about sin and righteousness and the worship of a holy God. The New Testament application, then, is to learn those lessons, but the application is also seen in the use of the word holiness and sanctification or sanctify in the New Testament interchangeably by Paul and other uh, authors. We dropped, of course, the ceremonial distinctions as we read in Acts and Hebrews, that we don't have to have these ceremonial laws anymore that... um, You know, our wives, mothers don't have to be purified for having a kid. Uh, We touch a dead animal. We don't have to purify ourselves other than, I don't like touching dead animals and I don't want something crawling over my hands. There's no ceremonial aspect. There's no lesson there for us today. But we can still learn those lessons from Leviticus about the call of holiness. And there's an interesting lesson we can also learn from this chapter 19, for example, is the lesson of individual and collective holiness. The laws there, in 19, I won't read all of them, talk about, you shall not, for example, in verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall shall rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. That's not libertarianism. That's not individualism. That's a community of holiness. We are called to rebuke your neighbor. On the flip side, not to hate him in your heart. We are called in our holiness. Christian holiness is not pure individualism. People kind of grow up that way. I grew up that way in the Christian church, not exclusively. No one's, no one actually practices that to the exclusive, exclusively. I guess unless they live in a hole somewhere. You're at church. You're interacting with one another, and something says something offends you. Often you say something, even in big churches, I suppose, or perhaps you mumble on your breath and walk off and never go back to the church again, because you realize that holiness also is collective in that sense, or interactive and reciprocal. Whatever other word perhaps is a better word. The individual call to holiness is mentioned there in 1 Peter fifteen. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, how you live as a believer. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Peter is quoting Leviticus and applying it straight to us today. Because it is applicable. It is part of our moral DNA as Christians to be holy. It's call and command of God. But it's not just you individually and all that you can do. It's collectively. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. There it's more explicit. Talking about all of you. A holy nation. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So holiness isn't just how much Bible can I do throughout the week and prayer in my closet. You ought to do that. But it's more than that. It's a community effort towards one another, as we covered some of that in 1 Peter, in fact. What is the source of holiness? That's holiness, being separated from sin and consecrated unto a holy purpose and righteousness unto God and for his glory. What is the source of holiness? This is helpful to know, because there's confusion. It's important to avoid two errors, that you are passive and God is active, for example, and that was... The language that I grew up with is let go and let God and that's not a good way to live I tried it and so you're very passive until something you know hits you over the head and oops I made a mistake um, I should have been more active at my job and initiative and changed my job perhaps I don't know what God wanted for me is what you're told in those circles you know look out for God's will God's will is to use your common sense and get a better job if you need to And that's an act of holiness. I didn't mention this, but holiness isn't just going to worship. It's your life. It's implicit there when it says you're a holy nation. And that all that we have, right, having pregnancy, you can be unholy. Why? Because moral activities are involved in everything a human does. The moral intent of the act is always there. And the other error is that you are active, of course, and God is passive, or reactive to you. And uh, you see that traditionally of something like God looked down the quarters of time and saw you do X, Y, Z, and added up, you did a lot of good works, so and you didn't do enough good works, so I'm going to pick you to be saved. What the? What a terrible way. No, no. No, the answer is both. You're both active in your call of holiness or sanctification, but of course God is the initiator and the sustainer of your activity. There are two moral agents. In your call of holiness, God is that active agent, with a capital A, who brings us new life. We are born again. Not we chose to be born again. We are born again. It's what is done to us by the Spirit of God. Now, regeneration, in fact, to talk about another part and facet of holiness, are the means of holiness. Being born again is not done in the vacuum, but done what? In the context of the gospel, of preaching, and of the church ordinarily. Accompanied by instruments of God. Sanctify them by your truth, Jesus says. Your word is truth. There are instruments of holiness. And the Spirit was pleased to use that for us being born again. Now, to go back to the idea of the two agents in our holiness, God initiates our sanctification... Ephesians one four, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That is God, not us. After the Spirit regenerates us, the process is reciprocal. We are called to keep God's precepts and commands to be holy and different from the world's sins because we have been raised from the dead spiritually and we can respond to God. And Philippians 2.12 and 13 is my favorite passage in this regard of sanctification of holiness. That it's not just you being passive, God being active, you being active and God being passive. But we are both passive and we can be are both active and we can be active because God has initiated it first. Therefore, my beloved, Philippians two twelve. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. You. God isn't obeying for you, you're obeying. But but God gave me the strength. Yes, but still, you're active. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Another way of looking at this is God's command of holiness to us is accompanied by his grace. And we read that there in verse 8 of chapter 20. You shall keep my statutes and perform them. Oh, woe is me. What can I do? I'm a sinner. I can't obey. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. God sanctifies you, even as he calls you to be sanctified. Because God works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And that should be encouraging. We should not despair in the day in which we are called to follow him, which is every day and in all things. God's command of holiness is always accompanied by his grace to fulfill that command. It's foundational to the Christian life, brothers and sisters. It's there very clearly in the Bible. Just being Christians, we are already holy because we are called saints. It means holy ones. Same word. By virtue of God's grace, do not let the call of holiness discourage you, but rather embolden you as we are called to be a shining light in a perverse and dark world. And the Lord's call to holiness will not come back to you void to him void, because he says, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You are being sanctified because God is behind it and he will fulfill it Make and makes you holy. Amen. Let us pray. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged in these dark times where it seems like our efforts fall, fail and fall and maybe will wither away to know that you are with us, and the call of holiness, Lord, is is not you dangling a carrot and swiping it away because you're playing games, but we can and are holy, God, and you are working in us both to will and to do your good pleasure. In fact, God, you call us to obedience to your law, for that is the shining light of holiness to call us God because you sanctify us. You are working in us, God, to be more like Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged in that regard as we pray and to never give up. Amen. Let us stand and sing hymn 385, 385. of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all.